Hey there, Brainiacs, and welcome to episode two of Brainwaves, Vivid Cortex's new podcast series where we talk about topics related to databases, data management, technology, startups, and engineering in general. My name is Alex, and I am one of your hosts. I am joined on the line by a couple of Vivid Cortex's resident Brainiacs, Pritam and John. What's going on, guys? Not much. I'm glad we're doing these things on Fridays. It's a good way to wind down. Yeah, definitely. Happy Friday, by the way, Alex. Thank you. You too. Uh, I, I agree, Prism. Just stick it right at the end of the week. Check out a little bit early. It's yeah. pretty nice. Um, our show this week is called Who Needs Jetpacks? We're already in the cloud. And as you might guess, we want to talk a bit about cloud storage and services. Um, obviously, this is a huge topic, especially as related to databases. And I expect us to come back to this plenty of times in the future, uh, in future episodes. That said, this is a particularly timely uh, episode as just this week we saw a big service disruption across the country as a result of an issue with Amazon's simple storage service or S3. Uh, chances are if you are listening to Vivid Cortex's podcast you probably already know all about the S3 incident um, and we're not interested in criticizing S3 from the sidelines or anything like that and they've done a great job with their post-mortem. Our interest here is to discuss the event and bridge it into wider discussion. So before we get uh, too deep into this, um, a little bit of quick background. Uh, a few days ago, on February 28th, a ton of web-based platforms across the country lost service when AWS executed a command that basically resulted in the loss of S3 functionality for several hours. This basically kicked off a chain reaction that led to a ton of Amazon services going down, highlighting how interconnected these services are and how Amazon relies on its own functionality. So Pritam and John, uh, to start things off, can you guys maybe take a second to explain S3 and what makes it unique and what people use it for? Uh, sure. So just to kind of start off, uh, S3 is, as it says, it's simple storage. And what that really means is um, basically they're exposing an API that you can use to upload data to their, their cloud uh, storage layer. Um, it's not, not really like Google Drive where you, know, you have your, your folder where you're managing your documents and you can go ahead and like, modify them and stuff. It's more like you post things um, into the cloud and then you pull them back down on demand. So it's basically just a place to save things when you don't really need, need them uh, on hand. Um, <clears throat> it's also a lot cheaper than like your, your standard cloud storage uh, uh, architecture. So like uh, if you're a consumer using Google Drive, for instance, just keep that, that parallel. Uh, it costs you roughly 20 cents per gigabyte uh, starting out. Uh, Amazon S3 costs about two cents a gigabyte. So it's um, a lot cheaper, it's simpler, um, and it's really geared towards businesses storing huge quantities of data um, that you can't really feasibly throw in a data center unless you have you know, tons of money to devote to data centers like Amazon does. Um, so that, that's kind of the, the baseline for it. Basically, you just throw all your data into Amazon and then you can uh, go and grab it whenever you need it. So, so wait, John, just to clarify, is, is S3 specifically only for businesses or can consumers use it like they might use Google Drive? Uh, you can use it as a consumer, um, but it's not really designed for, for use like that. Um, it doesn't have like the, the nice Google Drive UI where you can go through and like browse your, your documents. It's, uh, they, they organize in what they call buckets and then buckets are organized in what they call keys. And each key, I think, is, is basically uh, an object. Uh, and so you can go and like fetch a bucket slash key using a, uh, a, a HTTP request. Um, but they don't you know, make it the nice like, user-friendly interaction that uh, services like Google Drive or like Apple's Cloud 
uh, focuses on because it's not it's not designed for that. Um, it's designed to be uh, just for just store things and retrieve them and use them on your local machine, basically. So they do have like a web interface, but as John mentioned, it's, it's not. Basic. Yeah, it's super basic, and um, it's kind of funny because on the web interface you can see stuff as like folders, but S3 buckets by themselves don't have that kind of hierarchy. So it's um, it's kind of like a UI hack. Um, you see folders, but they don't actually exist. So. Okay, cool. So there, there's a certain level of tech savviness that uh, is sort of barrier and to entry for maybe a lot of people. Right. Okay, cool. So with that in mind, what, what makes uh, S3 unique? Is it, is it really that um, data to cost ratio that you were talking about, John? Uh, so that's one thing. Uh, the other thing is the, the guarantees that are behind the, the platform. So it's got um, a really high durability margin. I think it's like 99.99999. Can't remember how many nines are. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then they, they've got 99.9% uh, availability. So that's, that's really good um, availability and data persistence. So you can really kind of use it as uh, a guaranteed storage layer. And because it's so cheap, because they've got that, that you know, uh, economy of scale, um, you're paying a lot less than you would if you, you know, threw all this stuff on an external hard drive or you've got like a tape store um, for your local business. It's, it's just way cheaper than that. Um, and it lets you do really cool things with huge quantities of data because you're, you're paying less for it. Um, that kind of opens new doors for what we can do with the, the data that we've got around and that we can generate. Cool. So f forgive my ignorance on this, but is everybody using AWS uh, as a service, are they also inherently using S3? Are they, are they interconnected in that way? That's a good question. Um, well, I, I think it's interesting because, uh, so S3 is one of the first um, web services that AWS uh, released. So, I mean, just looking at the dates here, it was announced um, in like 2006 or something. So it's been over 10 years. And a lot of the, the services that are um, available in AWS actually use S3 to some extent. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, when this outage did happen a few days ago, um, it wasn't just S3 that was impacted. Uh, if you look at the list of services that were degraded or unavailable, it was like 40 something. Um, and they all depended on S3. So even if you're not using S3, um, chances are there's something that you're using on AWS that depends on S3. Gotcha. Like this, uh, I think before the show, John, John used the term cascading effect where Amazon has all these interconnected services. Um, and so when, when this command line error, whatever it was, uh, happened, um, it essentially deleted a few servers as far as I understand it. And, uh, it took too long or not too long, but it took a long time for their servers to reboot, meaning that a lot of those services were down causing other services to be down. So a lot of the people who used S3, these outside organizations really suffered uh, performance impact as, as part of that. Is that accurate? Right. So they've, they've got a, a pretty um, heavy amount of redundancy uh, in their, their internal systems. But uh, what happened, my understanding is, and you can read the, the post more for the exact details, but um, they were removing some, some servers from their, uh, their data center and they accidentally deleted um, far more than they intended to. And, the speed with which that command was carried out was too fast for them to, to kind of roll it back. 
um, and so some some critical services or servers were uh, removed, and that that's basically what started the the problems. And then from there, um, other services that depended on S3 um, started running into trouble, both because there wasn't enough capacity left to, to handle all the requests that were coming in, and because uh, a few critical servers actually knocked out uh, servers entirely in some cases. Uh, and so all of the services that are using S3 as a building block uh, got affected and it kind of rolled downhill from there. Uh, any business that depended on one of those services or on S3 directly, it was affected as a result of this. Um, gotcha. okay. In the region that was affected, I, I should clarify, it was only, I think, US East 1 uh, that, that was hit by this. I, don't right. I saw the data center is, was based in Virginia, right? Uh, so not too far from Vivid Cortex headquarters. So I think technically they call it um, U.S. standard, but yeah, I think it's like around, um, they're all in Virginia. Let me see. I'm going to look that up because I just saw it. Uh, the problems are originating from an Amazon data center region in Virginia. Yep. Yep. Very interesting. Nice and close to home. Um, cool. So um, I think that covers very basically uh, what S3 does. But so going to the actual event, the on I think it was past Tuesday, February 28th. Um, what were you guys' reactions as it was happening um, afterwards? What was going through your guys' heads as, as the S3 downage was going on? Oh, crap. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Um, Go on. <laughs> so when I first saw that outage, so I've been thinking about S3 um, over the past few weeks and, you know, I've been like reading up on how reliable S3 is and all kinds of uh, stuff like that. Um, and I just saw like, oh, when S3 went down, I was like, oh no, um, this is probably like the most reliable uh, service that Amazon has. And if this went down, you know, it's probably something super, super bad. Um, and I remember tweeting just like, you know, a few hours after it started, I was like, I can't wait to see the postmortem of this. It's going to be epic. Yeah. I mean, Amazon is like, you know, they know what they're doing, right? It's, it's been, uh, they've been running S3 for 10 years. Um, if something goes down, it has to be super bad. Um, but yeah, as I've read the actual postmortem, it was like, oh, it's a command line or a, you know, config, um, parameter issue. And it just, it was like human error. And I was like, oh no. We've all done that. Um, but it, it, I mean, it was kind of reassuring because uh, I think that's an easy fix. Um, you know, you can prevent those kinds of things. It's not like, you know, we, we had this terrible, um, it, it's not like they designed it wrong. Um, it, it's, it's a lot simpler than that. So I don't think, it didn't reduce my confidence in S3. It's actually it's reassuring to know that, you know, it, it's people that are, are really the, the main source of uh, problems at this point, and not the machines. Right. Not the design or the infrastructure. That makes sense. Going, going back to when it was actually happening, mm -hmm. did you guys know what, that, that it was a problem with S3 as opposed to anything else and some kind of cloud infrastructure? Um, were there any signs that pointed you toward that conclusion before there was any public statement from Amazon? Yeah, so we were actually at the at the time um, working on um, basically spinning up a uh, virtual machine from a elastic block storage uh, EBS snapshot. And if you're not familiar with how EBS works, um, the data from their snapshots are stored in S3. Uh, and so we saw this machine that was booting 
uh, basically go to 100% IOA because the data that it was trying to fetch from S3 uh, uh, in order to, to spin itself up was suddenly unavailable. Mm -hmm. um, so that, that blew up our, our, our job at the time. And then we said, okay, what's going on? Is it a problem with EBS? Um, and we, we quickly figured out it didn't look like there was a problem with EBS. We have a lot of EBS volumes and only one got toasted. So we said, okay, probably not an EBS issue. Um, and I think at the same time, you check Twitter and the Amazon status page, like people are starting to talk about like, um, a couple of people are saying their EBS volumes were uh, messed up. And other people are saying, I can't hit S3. Yeah, I was so, actually- Oh shoot, S3 is having problems. <laughs> I actually found out, um, so I check Hacker News a few times a day and I happened to check it and it was like, oh, S3 is having problems. And um, I think I was on my way to lunch and I was just like in line or something on my phone. Uh, and I was like, oh no, cause we were, you know, working with S3 and um, yeah, I was just like wondering how that's gonna affect uh, our service because we were affected by an outage um, the week before and still recovering. So I, I just went, oh no. More work. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I would assume most, most people, uh, especially anybody who's not um, actively working with uh, engineering or databases in some way, I, I would imagine their first encounter with the outage was uh, just trying to get on a website or use a service for, for some platform they, they use for whatever reason and it not working. Um, we, we were kind of starting to, to joke about that as, as things unfolded, you know, once you get the handle on things, it, it becomes more of a, uh, okay, well now we're just waiting for the problem to, to go away. And so uh, one thing that, that happened was we were taking screenshots and trying to post them into uh, HipChat. into HipChat, which we use at, at uh, the company, and the screenshots wouldn't upload. I'm like, why won't they upload these screenshots in the S3 outage? Oh, <laughs> well, let me try posting it to Imgur. Oh, <laughs> yeah, it really uh, fell fell into the, the looking glass that that time. Um, I mean, I think it's interesting and kind of indicative of of sort of a bigger bigger point we're getting at here is that. A lot of people, you know, if you go to a website or use a service and that one service is not working, that, I don't know, it, all that points to is that one service, that one website being down. But when you start seeing the whole collection of like things you use on a regular basis or all these different services, like uh, like for us, HipChat and then S3 and then also um, HubSpot is, is something we use for our website and for marketing tools, uh, that was also being affected by the S3 outage. When all those things go down at once, that's obviously indicative of a very different kind of event, something something bigger than just a single outage is going down. And uh, it's kind of getting towards the heart of this conversation, which is not just S3, but this uh, this you know general movement towards cloud storage in general. Yeah. Anecdotally, my favorite site that I saw affected by the outage was uh, is this site down.com? <laughs> <laughs> awesome. <laughs> um, so Pritam, so you just mentioned that you'd actually been studying up on S3 a little while before this past week. Um, right. So the, the outage almost in a weird way came at a perfect time for you because you'd been looking into it and you actually wrote on your, your personal blog uh, just recently about S3. Um, I don't know if you wanted to talk about that blog post at all or some of your thoughts that you discussed in it. Sure. Um, so I guess the blog post you're talking about is called S3 is not just for backups. 
Um, so I've been thinking about S3 for a while and for the most part, I treated it as, you know, this like object store that um, people usually associated with like image uploads. Um, what else? You know, like storing documents for some web app or something like that or backups. Um, Images, static site content, things like that. Yeah, um, you know, if you have an application that has uh, user um, data and you need to put it somewhere where it's like rarely accessed or whatever, um, people use S3 for that. Um, but then I was I was listening to a talk um, by some Netflix engineers uh, from the most recent reInvent, and they were talking about how S3 was actually their system of record. So they actually store everything in S3 by default. And then everything else, um, you know, whether it's like local storage or um, in Redshift or RDS or whatever, uh, is basically just like the fast ephemeral um, indexed storage. But everything is actually in S3. So, you know, if it's not in S3, then it's basically like, well, they don't care about it that much anyway. Doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, so they basically treat all of their data as um, all the you know data that's not in S3 as ephemeral. So in the worst case scenario where everything just shuts down, they lose everything. Um, as long as S3 is there, they're okay. Gotcha. So um, I was writing this blog post thinking, well, um, you, you can really, you know, instead of just treating S3 as some sort of backup location where, you know, sometimes um, every once in a while you just take a bunch of your data and just push it into S3 and forget about it until a disaster happens. Um, I wanted to treat S3 like just another tier of storage. So you have, you know, memory, you have your disks, and then um, you would have S3. And um, after I posted that blog post, somebody uh, pointed me to um, a system called Snowflake, and they do exactly this. Um, and then, you know, after looking at Snowflake, I realized there's lots of other uh, systems that use S3 like that. So I think it's, it's interesting how, uh, at least for me, my perspective changed on what S3 um, can actually do. So it's not even, not even transforming the technology itself. It's more the way that the people use it, um, apply different functionalities to it. Uh, it's, it's almost like the psychology with which they're approaching S3. Right. Did you say that's correct? Okay. Different perception of, of what you can use it for. Most people think about, you know, I'll take this big clunky um, thing that I need to store like a backup or something like that or a mm -hmm. disk image. And I'll put it in S3 because the storage is really cheap. Um, but the other, you know, the other things that it's really good at besides cost is durability and availability, um, which are things that you really need to have for your data anyways. So you can use it for, for more than just backups. Um, and it, it's kind of an interesting idea of like how, how much can you rely on S3 for uh, live site data? How, how performant is it for, for um, user requests? If I am <clears throat> making a request of, you know, say the big cortex, if the data was being fetched from S3, would it be fast enough for our users' expectations? Um, and that's kind of, you know, the, where you get into the idea of adding um, more servers, more um, disk storage that's using ephemeral storage as uh, a caching layer rather than 
calling it your, your persistent storage layer or your system of record. Um, so you, you pull things down from S3 and you keep them in, uh, in memory or on disk. Uh, but that's not where your, uh, your actual records are, you know, Know, the the true source of, of truth that becomes S3 rather than whatever server you've got in in Amazon or uh, any other data center because you know you could use Google Cloud as well if you wanted to. Yeah, I was going to ask this this uh, sort of workflow prism. Um, it's not specific to S3. It's it's really any service that offers a function with the same uh, kind of placement or reliability as S3. Correct. Right. So. Okay past 10 years, we've seen lots of systems that um, are compatible with S3. So if people don't want to use Amazon's data centers and stuff, um, they can run their own private cloud. So they, if they have their own data center, they can um, deploy software like Eucalyptus uh, that presents an S3 API. So they can use the same tools and APIs and um, libraries and stuff and talk to that system just like it was a, as if it was S3. Uh, but it's within their own hardware and uh, their network. It's also worth mentioning Google has a cloud storage uh, service that is very similar to S3. Not Google Drive, they actually call it Google Cloud Storage. And it's actually S3 compatible. Yeah. Oh, interesting. So they could even interact as you're using both. Mm -hmm. Yeah, apparently you just have to change like the uh, the endpoint and just you know use your uh, you know your Google authentication tokens and stuff like that, and then it's basically the same thing. Um, there's a paper I saw the other day, I think you shared it to me actually, Pritam, uh, about an architecture that stored data in multiple cloud service uh, storage solutions. The idea being, th these things are so cheap, it, you don't have to worry about the cost of storing like three or four of them at, the at a time. Um, so we'll just use all of them and basically uh, copy our data, you know, stripe it out across multiple um, cloud storage providers. And if the price of one changes substantially or if you have an availability issue, you're cool. You've got replicas, um, which is a really interesting idea. I don't, I'm not entirely sure um, how, how useful that is in practice, but I, I like the idea of like, oh, we're going to optimize for an S3 outage by putting our data in you know, Azure and Google Cloud at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Who cares about the cost? It's only like two cents a gigabyte. Yeah. <laughs> Cool. So, I mean, this is, this is getting really interesting because it's, it's, we're not really just talking about S3 anymore, but talking about the way that people's behaviors are changing as these services become more common. Um, on one hand, there's these potentials that you guys are talking about and the way that uh, kind of new solutions are forming just based out of the capabilities that these services offer. On the other hand, we have something like the S3 outage, which introduces a, uh, I guess a kind of risk like that, that, that human error that Pritam you said really surprised you, um, which I think is also really interesting. I'm actually going to go back to the postmortem for just a second because there were a couple quotes from it that I thought were uh, of particular interest and worth, worth sharing and, and just reading verbatim um, mm -hmm. to get you guys thoughts. So these are, these are both uh, kind of pulled from the S3 postmortem that came out the next day. Um, I'm just going to read them exactly as they appeared. So speaking about one of the subsystems that was inadvertently deleted, uh, the postmortem said, quote, 
One of these subsystems, the index subsystem, manages the metadata and location information of all S3 objects in the region. This subsystem is necessary to serve all get, list, put, and delete requests. Uh, and this is one of, again, the subsystems that was inadvertently deleted as part of the S3 event. Um, I pulled this quote because I thought it was interesting how significant of a subsystem could be the victim of accidental human error. Um, we'll get to that in a second. And the second quote is, quote, S3 subsystems are designed to support the removal or failure of significant capacity with little or no customer impact. Customer impact. We build our systems with the assumption that things will occasionally fail, and we rely on the ability to remove and replace capacity as one of our core operational processes. So essentially, uh, Amazon saying, we know things fail, things are designed to be able to work when they fail, and yet this particular failure still caused you know, a huge outage. Um, that one jumped out to me as uh, sort of really core to the identity of what cloud computing and storage seems to be right now, which is that it is safe and it's reliable and it's consistent, it's available, and yet something like this can still happen. Um, I don't know if you guys had any thoughts about, about those points. So uh, both of those things actually resonate uh, with me thinking about our own architecture in, in certain ways. So we have the equivalent of the index subsystem in Vivid Cortex. Uh, if you want to read or write time series data to Vivid Cortex, you need to go through um, our directory service. It's basically the system of record for where things live. Um, and we've, we've basically got the same kind of um, setup in the sense that if you don't, like if the directory service went away, then we would be dead in the water. Uh, you wouldn't be able to write data to us and you wouldn't be able to read data from us. Um, obviously, we've taken pretty significant steps to make sure it's uh, able to uh, operate through failures. So um, same thing that they say, we build our system with the assumption that things will occasionally fail. Uh, our directory service is, um, <clears throat> excuse me, it's highly available in the sense that if uh, we have a, a node failure, you know, a server or two servers, and, uh, three or four or five go down, um, we're still able to operate. Um, we don't lose the ability to continue ingesting metrics or continue um, showing information to our users. Uh, so you, there is this, this expectation if you're running in the cloud um, that you have to be able to handle things, things failing because even though you're, um, you're relying on these, these services that are supposed to be you know, really easy to use and uh, have a lot of reliability around them. The truth is once you start operating at larger scales, you run into this problem where statistically, you know, 99.9% .9 availability starts meaning um, you're gonna have one or two or three failures a month. Uh, and I, I actually once got to talk to a, a Google site reliability engineer and he told me that a uh, hard drive fails in one of Google's data centers roughly once every 10 minutes. Um, so the idea of failure being um, something that's a rare occurrence is actually kind of a, a false idea because once you start operating at the scale of you know, having warehouses full of uh, racks of computers, you know, huge arrays of, of drives that are backing things, um, individual failures become quite common. So you have, to, you have to plan for that. And the larger your organization gets, the more infrastructure that you have, the more redundancy you have to build into it because of that. Because you, know, you could have your lucky server that's eventually gonna get Get, uh, get killed. And if it's toast, you know, are you up or are you down? Uh, and you see this with a lot of mentalities from companies like Netflix and Chaos Monkey. You know, they randomly kill 
uh, instances that they rely on to make sure that they don't have any single points of failure. So I guess this, where this leaves me is with the question of uh, the impression and the reliance that people put on cloud storage and cloud computing in general as, as safer. Um, and the big question that I think S3 raises uh, where we saw a central system, central infrastructure go through an issue and have a pretty massive uh, wave effect on all these other systems and platforms that relied on it is the question is does cloud storage increase the risk of a widespread problem um, and for instance with s3 even though individual organizations are safe because their data is distributed doesn't that also mean there's a single infrastructure that if hindered could interrupt service for many organizations instead of just one um, and is this a legitimate concern uh, i i don't know but i'm hoping you guys could <laughs> shed some light on that. I think those are valid concerns, but I think we're at a point um, with, you know, like where we are uh, about thinking about cloud storage and cloud services in general that I think these are things we can engineer around. Um, it's not like, you know, we have one machine that's using S3 and it assumes that S3 is going to be reliable 100% um, of the time and available 100% of the time. Um, maybe that was the case, you know, a few years ago or something like that. But I think these days, again, as John mentioned, we have things like Chaos Monkey and, um, you know, people are sort of, or I hope, I think people are uh, starting to get really comfortable with failure. So yes, um, S3 went down in one region um, and this core subsystem sort of took down everything and lots of services were affected. But um, yeah, I think there is a really, I mean, I wouldn't say it's simple, but it's straightforward. Um, there's a straightforward workaround for something like that. And it's to use another uh, region's S3. So it's kind of funny. So I was listening to, to um, a talk by Adrian Cockcroft. I don't remember um, which one it, it was. Uh, it was a few years ago while he was still at Netflix. And he was talking about how people um, were surprised that Netflix was actually more available than Amazon. Um, you know, they would look at an Amazon outage and they say, oh, wow, isn't Amazon supposed to be super reliable? And they look at Netflix, which is running on Amazon, um, and they're up while Amazon's still down. And that's because Netflix has managed to, you know, really sort of um, take advantage of the fact that cloud services aren't always available and they engineered around it. Um, and they did that very early on. And it's kind of surprising how well, um, I guess at the time it was really surprising how well they did it. But now it just seems like, you know, that's, that's what, yeah, it's like what you should be doing. Um, I'll, I'll follow on kind of by, by circling back a little bit to how, how the issue uh, happened. And, you know, the, the S3 outage was caused by an engineer making a mistake. Um, and there, there's two things I want to highlight on that. And that's, it's not the automation that's failing. You know, this wasn't like a cascading hardware, uh, hardware failure. Um, it's 
a, a human making a change in the system that had an unintended consequence. Um, and we should be really happy that that's where, where we're at, that humans are causing the problems. Um, it means we've engineered good systems and we don't have to worry about individual failures causing uh, these massive you know, scale outages. Uh, and Amazon's got, got plans to you know, make, uh, make that harder to do in the future. So we can engineer ourselves out of the equation too as well, make it so that a human can't come in and break everything um, at the click of a button or you know, because we fat fingered something. And that's, you know, that's kind of the next, uh, next step is human proofing machines as well as uh, failure proofing them. Um, also as a kind of a, a story in terms of these, these sweeping outages, um, these are things that happen regardless of whether or not you're, you're running in the cloud or locally. Uh, a great example for, you know, people making, making mistakes and causing massive failures is uh, a few years back, um, I think it was Pakistan, tried to block access to YouTube in the country. And they did this by having the nation's ISP simply state um, on the internet, I am YouTube. And so basically all traffic uh, in the country would go to this uh, particular data center, which just threw it all away, basically. Uh, the problem with that is the way that the internet works is it Basically, it's very trusting. Um, and so when Pakistan's ISP announced I am YouTube, that uh, announcement propagated across the entire globe and took down the internet. Um, all, of, all of YouTube was, was uh, down globally because Pakistan had basically said, I am YouTube now, um, don't worry, I'll take care of your requests and then threw them all away. <laughs> yeah, and everybody's like, oh, this, per or this uh, ISP is saying it's YouTube, I trust it, um, I'll send all the traffic that, that's supposed to go to YouTube to this data center instead. So you, you, get a, you end up getting a global outage for a service uh, because a human made a decision. And it's worth noting that this was uh, fixed, I think, all in spent about 45 minutes. Um, but, you know, kind of the scope of, of the kinds of mistakes that we can make, you know, it, it's huge. You can make a, a global uh, scale mistake now. So the, the, the stakes are a little higher for humans. But luckily, the systems that we've built are... are they're pretty well designed to handle these things as long as you don't do anything too stupid. Um, and we're, we're working on engineering ourselves out of the equation so that, you know, one day we'll just be sitting up, you know, watching all the magic happen saying, wow, we built something great, didn't we? <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, just to keep things in context, um, I think I may have mentioned this already, but the last S3 outage before what happened uh, last week, was in 2015. So there hasn't been any issues with S3 in this region uh, since then. So I think it's, it's great that, you know, it may not be perfect, but it's definitely better than whatever we can do um, with an alternative. And better than not using a cloud storage alternative, I assume. Um, right. Just because Amazon has an outage doesn't mean we're gonna start racking our own data center. So a theme I'm, I'm hearing in what you guys are saying is when these events do happen, they can be pretty massive. For example, the Pakistan YouTube one, it's on a global scale, but the effect is not that deep or very permanent. Um, there's, there's resilience there that if something happens, even if it happens widely, uh, the recovery time is pretty quick and the damage done um, the system can pretty much roll with the punches because it's so well engineered and the support system is uh, so thoroughly designed. And so that's correct. 
Yeah, and, and additionally, um, the people that are, are building these cloud systems, that they're doing one thing and they're doing it well. Sure. Um, and that that's nice because as, you know, uh, a company that doesn't want to get into the cloud storage business, uh, we can build things cheaper, we can build them more reliably uh, and do more exciting things because we have another company that we can rely on. And just because we rely on them uh, doesn't mean that we have to trust them completely. We should design for, for failures in our systems and assume that failure is commonplace. But the fact that it is not commonplace is really powerful and that's what allows us to build more uh, performant, more reliable, and more uh, cheap systems. I mean, this, I mean, this conversation, Vivid Cortex is not a cloud storage uh, company, but we are based in the cloud. So this, this conversation does reflect back on us in the sense that right. if somebody says, you know, I don't really trust a centralized distributed cloud system or solution anymore, um, I mean, that does affect us. And it affects, I think, by a lot of accounts, just where technology is heading quickly, where we have already arrived, as the title of this episode kind of indicates. Um, what are, what are some of the concerns and we'll wrap this up shortly. What are some of the concerns that you imagine people might have to, uh, products like S3 or just cloud services, um, as a result of something like this? Um, I, I kind of mentioned this briefly already, but you know, the stakes are getting higher with our, our services. We're specializing things and we're, uh, making them better, but we're also, uh, investing in them more. So, you know, uh, this year we have an outage and a bunch of sites go down for a few hours. Uh, what happens in 20 years if, you know, we've got some critical public infrastructure that is running through a cloud provider and it goes down. And now rather than having, um, a, you know, website outages, we have like a brownout on the East coast or something like Self driving cars or something. Yeah. I, um, so I, I think that would be the, the kind of concerns I would look to is as we start automating more things that are, um, affecting our lives in terms of uh, public utilities and transportation, um, we have to be careful and make sure that we're not, basically we have to uh, assume that these things will fail. Um, and if we don't have the, the right kind of mentality, the kind of mentality that uh, cloud companies, you know, people that are investing in, in cloud sites like Amazon have today, um, then we're gonna have pretty pretty bad time on our hands. Um, I, I think that's the, the big one for me, I don't know, Friesen? I think um, what I learned, you know, after this outage is you really have to be careful about what your dependencies are, and especially, you know, since we have so many um, cloud-based solutions that are also using cloud providers, you're not always sure that, um, you know, they're all using uh, different services and they're all engineered the way you think they are. Um, I mean, one example is like, I don't think anyone expected Amazon's dashboard to be hosted also in one region, which was down. <laughs> um, so, I mean, it, it's kind of a shock to us, but I guess it, it's just like a, a mini lesson of what may actually happen at a much worse scale in the future. Um, like for example, I don't know, maybe you're using one service um, and you know, you don't want to be 100% dependent on that service, so you have another alternative. Um, but it turns out they both depend on S3 or something in one region. Um, so you thought you had redundancy, but 
You did. didn't. Yeah, you didn't. And it's kind of, you know, opaque to you because you don't really know how people are engineering their systems. Sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, in the end, we're kind of still on one planet. So <laughs> if something bad does happen, then, um, yeah, I, I guess it won't be such a big surprise if, you know, your service is unavailable. Let's build a data center on Mars. That'll teach them. <laughs> I think we need to get there. I'm just waiting for Elon Musk to do it. I'm, yeah, I'm ready to go. I'll jump on that jet. Um, right, buy a ticket. Rocket, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, I, I guess the, the, the big takeaway, though, is even though these concerns are, are legitimate and things that need to be addressed, that anybody who would be saying, and excuse the pun, the sky is falling, um, you would say, hold on, it's, it's, not, it's not worth abandoning the technology that we've developed just because there are some concerns. This guy's not falling. It's just a little rain. <laughs> I like it. All right, cool. Um, I think that that wraps us up for for today. Um, thank you, guys. This was a great, very educational conversation. Yeah, have fun. Cool. Um, and for our listeners, if you guys have any questions or comments, you can send them by email to podcast at vividcortex.com, or you can leave them as comments on the Vivid Cortex blog where we post each of these episodes. Uh, also, as a quick heads up to everybody, Brainwaves is now also on iTunes, where you can find it by searching for Vivid Cortex and subscribing so you get every episode as soon as it comes out. Uh, you can also find us on SoundCloud and Overcast.fm. Thanks for tuning in and stay brainy. <laughs>